The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Now I encourage you to turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue in our Corinthians series. I suppose many of you at one time or another in your school days took an anatomy class. When I was in college, I was required to take a, a physiology class. And if you know anything about the two subjects, anatomy is static. You're focused on just the body parts, but physiology is active, looking at all the systems, the organ systems of the body and how they function and work together. And Paul gives us something of a physiology lesson in tonight's passage to help us understand how the body of Christ functions and has been gifted and equipped by God's Spirit to fulfill God's purposes in expanding his kingdom on earth. We're reminded here that each and every one of us are essential, that we belong to God and to one another, and that we are called by Christ to embrace one another, to participate with the work of the Spirit, to spread the knowledge of the glory of Christ to the othermost parts of the world. I read 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. But the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that all the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, 
Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In my junior high years, I had the privilege of participating in some honors English classes uh, by which we received more advanced reading and writing instruction uh, in the classroom. And uh, later on, my, later on my, my junior high school started a gifted and talented program that apparently provided more challenging material for students that were able to handle it. And uh, my former eighth grade English teacher taught this gifted and talented class, and she also was the head of the English department. Well, my mother was also a teacher at the same school, and she, her specialty was in special ed, a reading specialist, helping students with learning disabilities. And uh, on more than one occasion, my mother, mother's attempt, uh, efforts to advocate for her students were repeatedly thwarted by the head of her department uh, for risk of giving resources to her students that might infringe upon the privileges uh, and, and the focus of her gifted and talented students. It appeared that my eighth, former eighth grade teacher was concerned that the, the gifted and talented students be the top priority and that all others' concerns were secondary. Well, class warfare begins early in life. And we know all too well that competition is very fierce in our schools. And we know that in our culture that there are, certainly are many, some gifts that are more highly valued than others. We live in a world of priority male, male. Executive memberships, advanced placement, gifted and talented, and various labels that categorize people according to ability, status, and perceived worth. It is human nature for those people of high status to protect their privileges over those of low status. It is also quite natural for those of low status to envy and resent those of high status. Over the last several centuries, strong political movements around the world have fed off this class warfare tension. Communism, socialism, and labor party all fester on this idea of privileges and status and equalization of human access to resources. Well, 2,000 years ago, Paul is addressing some of these same concerns in the church at Corinth trying to bring God's word to these divisions and classes, the the pride and the prejudice that that arise over gifts and the talents that God has blessed his people with. You see, when people convert and come to faith in Jesus Christ, they don't necessarily shed their worldly attitudes, at least right away, whether it has to do with economics and status and privilege. They carry with us into the church community. And so pride, 
judgmentalism, comparison, self-pity, and other issues of the heart must be uprooted and replaced with the fruit of the Spirit to enable the body of Christ to be all that God intends it to be. Paul here casts a vision of the church where each member rightly belongs and each one can flourish with his or her gifts as God has granted them for the glory and the honor of Christ. Paul begins with a very elegant analogy of the human body as he continues his theme from earlier in the chapter regarding the Spirit's gifts to the church and all the resources that God has given his people. This past week, my family has hosted two girls from Japan uh, here for just a week, and I was reminded that, that Japan is not a nation with lots of natural resources. Their people are their greatest resource. And that's true with the church, that our resource are, is our, our people, whom the Spirit has equipped and gifted to do the work of Christ. Paul's message is pretty simple and clear here in the first two verses, that, that the body of Christ is one body, and yet it has many members. And he says in verse 13, he uses two water images regarding baptism and drink. You and I, who are in Christ, have been cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that applies that atoning work to our hearts that is symbolized when we undergo water baptism, that symbolizing our washing and cleansing of our former life of sin. And likewise, it's also when we come to Christ, when we have a new identity in Christ, our spiritual thirst is quenched by the Spirit. It's like it's spiritual water to our, our longing hearts and souls, and that it's the Holy Spirit that seals us, confirms us in our new identity, and satisfies our spiritual thirst. And so Paul wants to appeal to this primary identity that that we've been washed and cleansed and purified by the work of Christ, that, that this identity, this status, has trump power over all other social distinctions, racial, religious, socioeconomic, educational, and any other worldly status and label that we tend to form our identity around. We are one body, knit together in Christ, through which we can overcome the world's labels to be who we are are together as God's people. Now, verses 14 and 20 have a kind of a bookend effect drawing our focus to this message that we are one body with many members. And Paul actually uses a rather humorous uh, image of, of body parts almost arguing with each other and contending with each other and some body parts questioning whether or not they really belong to the body. And the foot asking, uh, just because it's not a hand or the ear, because it's not an eye, you know, do I still belong to the body? And uh, Paul is really addressing the people in Corinth, really the majority of the people who were of lower status, uh, who were less educated and less wealthy and had le- less privileges than some of the more privileged people in uh, the local church. And uh, some of these folks were questioning whether they were truly accepted. Do, do we really belong here? Am I out of place? Uh, you know, whether it's customs, dialect, the way we speak, the way we act, the, the very assumptions that are rooted in our culture. 
Every once in a while, uh, some pundit in uh, national media makes a comment about NFL place kickers. You know who place kickers are? They kick off and they kick field goals, and, and they make some comment that place kickers really aren't football players because they're smaller and their athletic abilities don't match the rest of the team. So are they really football players or more like soccer players? But just what happens, they score more points than any other player on the team. Well, just as a place kicker may be insecure about whether or not he belongs on the team, so some people in the church wonder, do I belong here? Well, Paul goes on next in his message in verses 21 to 26. And here, after, after having comforted the lowly uh, who are questioning whether they belong, he now humbles the high-minded uh, who are looking down upon lower status people. And once again, it could be a matter of language or socioeconomic status. And continuing this body analogy uh, and even using humor, and I, I think that Paul is using some of this, this analogy uh, to help soften the blow. He, he wants to be firm, he wants to be confrontational, but doing it in an imagistic way to help soften the blow and help people to get it. And, you know, once again, the eye, can the eye say to the head or the head to the feet that I don't need you? You know, why are you here? Why, do you, why are you even a part of this body? Well, that's, that's crazy. The body needs all of its members. That's the way God designed it. A quarterback would not fare very well without his offensive lineman. He would be sacked every time and helpless to make a forward pass. Uh, Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever in the NFL, uh, apparently he takes his offensive lineman out to dinner every week and, and buys them very nice gifts at, at Christmas because he appreciates what, what these unheralded heroes do for him. He, he cannot be successful without them, with all their grunt work protecting him in the pocket. You know, cows need cowbirds. And cowbirds need cows. I mean, someone has to eat the grass and someone has to eat the bugs. And it's a symbiotic relationship. And so in the church, we have differences in talents and skills and abilities that all serve a purpose to bring glory to God. Now, Paul also draws attention to the fact that, that the body has weaknesses. Just as our physical human bodies have weaknesses, the church has weaknesses. We have, we have vulnerable parts. And if one part suffers, all the parts suffer together. And to use an NFL analogy once more, I remember years ago when a famous wide receiver or defensive back couldn't play in the game because he had turf toe. I thought to myself, what in the world is turf toe? You mean your, your big toe is hurting you, you can't play? Well, apparently it's a very painful, debilitating problem. And so if you were taking your toe for granted, all of a sudden you realize that if it's not working right, you can't run or jump or do the things you normally would do. If one part suffers, they all suffer together. Likewise, if you have a bad heart a weak liver, weak kidneys, a, a bad knee, you're going to give a lot of attention and medical resources and medication and rehabilitation to that member of your body to strengthen it for the good of the entire body. Well, our, our church is like many churches, that uh, many people come to our church weak, beaten up, battered by the world, and come with problems and challenges. 
And some people come in and they're not able to contribute as much at first. It may need lots of attention and care with counseling services, with encouragement and healing. And of course, there are going to be some people in the church who have serious sin problems that need confrontation, that may need discipline. And Paul addresses that elsewhere. But I believe his main point to us, to the church body, is that we have a duty to protect, to identify and recognize what is vulnerable that needs protection, that needs encouragement, that needs strengthening and building up. And oftentimes those are what Paul calls the less honorable. There, there are things that are less honorable in the eyes of the world that find their place here in the church. Those people who are not accepted elsewhere. Those people who can't find a place of belonging elsewhere. They have a home here. God accepts them here. God loves them and embraces them in the context of the church where they can get encouragement and strengthening and find a new purpose. You see, God has composed the body for a purpose. And we're not a country club. of just all beautiful people who are gifted and talented and never have any problems or issues. Rather, we are the place where anybody can belong. Anybody who bows to Christ and acknowledges him as Lord and Savior. And, and when we do that, we rebuke the world and all of its arrogance and all of its pride and all of its rejection and all of its bullying and all of its elite ways. We embrace people who are part of Christ's body for being built up for glorious purposes to testify to God's greatness. And so God provides the gifts that the body needs for a very healthy, functioning body. And Paul lists the various gifts. These are not exhaustive, but represent, representational in verses 27 to 31. And the, the, he lists the various leadership gifts of apostleship and, and prophet gifts and teachers. Uh, there's even a, a group of, of gifts, you might call the miraculous or supernatural gifts, uh, the, the confirmational signs of God's truth and authority in the early church and maybe even some gifts on ongoing maintenance of administration and helping and encouragement. And, you know, we could say, for, for starters here, that we know that the apostolic gift was a, a, a one-season-only a one gift. We don't believe that the, the gift and sign of apostleship continues on past what we call the apostolic age, the, the, those that Jesus appointed to carry on his mission to entrust uh, to elders and pastors for future generations. Uh, the prophetical gift was unique as well. We can explore that more in chapter 14 uh, later in our series as, uh, as we talk more about, about preaching and teaching and encouragement in the Word. And, you know, there's various supernatural gifts of speaking in tongues and miracles and hearing, healing powers. And uh, we'll cover that in more depth in chapter 14. But just to, I want to give you a, a quick preview, at least of my understanding of these things, that... Um, we, we do believe there's a difference. Uh, we do play, believe that there was a, a, a supernatural outpouring of kinds of gifts in the apostolic age that were unique, and, and some have continuity and some don't. Uh, we believe that uh, miraculous powers and signs are not regular. They're not normative for the Christian life, that they, they appeared for a season— when God was establishing his church and establishing the revelation of his word, 
And I would even argue that you can look across biblical history and you can ask yourself, well, is the Bible full of miracles? I would argue that there's really only three eras in the Bible where miracles were normative. And that's during the life and ministry of Moses, during the lives and ministries of Elijah and Elisha the prophets, and during the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. There are huge gaps in, in biblical history where there's not normato- normal, regular signs of great wonders and miracles and, and the kinds of things that we tend to, that tend to get our attention in biblical history. And so I would argue that, that there was a time and place for those gifts and outpourings of signs and miracles that are not normative today. We're not, we're not to regularly expect them, nor are we to manufacture them artificially. But, but who are we to uh, tell God that he can't act when and where he chooses to act? And God has a free hand across the world, especially in frontline missions, to do things that might uh, tickle our ears and, and, and turn our, our, the hair on the back of our heads up. But, but God is at work, and we believe and, and trust that he is using the regular means of grace to spread the message of the gospel through preaching and through deeds of love, which is where Paul is going in the next couple chapters as he's trying to tone down the Corinthians' preoccupation with great signs and wonders and miraculous gifts for them to focus on deeds of love and the communication of God's word. So Paul has a vision, a vision of a flourishing and healthy body, like a car with all of its parts working properly for optimum performance. We're to be a people of mutual respect who, in a humble manner, appreciate and accept others in what they bring to offer to contribute to the church and its ministry. We all belong for his glory. And it's God who is working in us to communicate the gospel of God's grace through the ministry of the word and through deeds of love, that more and more people can come, see, and worship the one true and living God. So what hinders us? If this is God's will, if this is God's design, if this is what God desires for his body, the body of Christ in the, in the church universal and the local church here particularly, what is it that hinders us from being the body that God desires us to be? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, in, in our natural tendency, we, we tend to prefer people like us. Uh, you know, when, when, when someone is having an organ transplant, they look for a good tissue match, one that's a good fit, one that has similar uh, characteristics. Or when one needs a blood transfusion, you, you want the same blood type, or at least one that's compatible rather than one that's going to be rejected by your body. Well, you know, when, when people who are different who come with cultural differences, relational differences, vocabulary, grammar, the way they express their emotions, even their social graces. Sometimes it can be like a bad tissue match. Sometimes the the antibodies of, of, of the church body can be resistant and rejecting towards people who don't seem to fit right in our church culture. Years ago in my young adult ministry, I had a, a young man who was... Uh, a bit of a challenge, uh, who, who was a little socially awkward, uh, who uh, 
had a very strong personality who would dominate conversations, who would corner people. He was a very big guy. He was kind of intimidating, especially to the girls in our group. And so I had to pull him aside and explain to him what's appropriate, uh, what's acceptable. How do you want to, you know, communicate and relate in a way that's not off-putting? And, you know, it wasn't easy, but our group did a great job of making him, making room for him to find a place for him uh, to accept him and affirm him, uh, somebody who in many ways the world was rejecting. I think another challenge that we face is that we, we are more shaped by American individualism than we realize. Uh, the Suppleys were talking about Egyptian culture and uh, the, the group mentality and really do not embrace the hyper-individualism that is so rampant in our own culture. And um, Americans really pride, we prize our personal rights uh, and oftentimes emphasize our freedoms over self-sacrifice that is required. That's required if we're going to build true community life that's loving and accepting towards outsiders. Um, Back in, in 1980, from 1982 to 2006, a group of psychologists did a, a thorough study with uh, thousands of college students, and they compiled a report called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. And part of their research was to ask students to respond uh, to several statements, uh, th- three of these that I'm about to read. Uh, one is, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. I think I am a special person, and I can live my life the way I want to. Well, not surprisingly, over a 24-year period, that the researchers found a 30% increase in responses that were more narcissistic and self-centered. And they would define a narcissist as someone who lacks empathy, who react, reacts with, ag- with aggression against criticism, and favors self-promotion over serving other people. And these researchers attributed to this rise in narcissism largely to the self-esteem movement that, that got its wind in, back in the 1980s. And their advice to parents and educators were to, to stop telling kids they're so great and force them to face the consequences for misbehavior. They also recommended more authoritative parenting. So there's what the doctor ordered. So we have our work cut out for us. You know, America is a strange place. We have a history of welcoming, of embracing the stranger. I mean, we're a nation of immigrants uh, of incorporating various cultures into a melting pot, and yet we're also a nation with the idolatry of freedom and autonomy, and these values clash. That they clash, and, and they fail to provide the necessary attributes of compassion, of selfless service that are needed to create true community, where there is acceptance, where everyone truly belongs. And we, the church, have an opportunity to show the world a gracious model. How to fulfill the culture's vision of a place of belonging where the culture completely fails and is lacking the resources to do it. Government socialistic and welfare reforms won't cut it. Higher education, multicultural and diversity training 
is going to fall short. Secularism that may embrace certain aspects of the Christian vision of the brotherhood of humanity and, and all these ideas, but rejecting the nature of sin, rejecting our need for God's grace, leaves the progressive agenda failing to achieve its dream. Friends, you and I have a better goal, have better resources to be the kind of people, to be the true body of Christ that God intends for more and more to gather in to reflect the diversity and the beauty uh, of God's plans and purposes with the body of Christ. I think another problem that we face is that we're oftentimes very short-sighted in what people can contribute. We have a narrow focus on desirable gifts, just like standardized testing, just like a preoccupation with the SAT or the IQ test. Uh, Many studies in the last several decades have demonstrated different people have different kinds of intelligence, emotional intelligence, spatial intelligence, uh, various kinds of awareness and ability that can't just be measured with the typical standardized test. And so, likewise, we as God's people need to recognize people's potential. Do we see people as contributors? Are we committed to developing people and their potential within the community of the body of Christ? Do we see beauty in other people who are dismissed by the world, who are written off? Do we embrace the vision of Jesus who sees the potential diamonds in the rough and develops something great and beautiful through the work of God's Spirit? Where the schools fail, where our government fails, where oftentimes the churches fail, is Christ who succeeds in extending his body and fulfilling God's vision for the body of Christ. Where you and I are blinded too often by our pride and by our self-righteousness, Jesus was compelled by love. As he who held the highest place made himself low. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus traded places with us. All of us who were lowly, none of us who had any gift and value towards God, have been now invested with worth and value and gift and potential for the glory of God. You and I were the kids neglected in school, who told we were not, would not amount to anything. But Jesus came along to, be, to invest in us, to transform us, and to make something of us. We were the kids on the playground picked last, or completely not picked at all. And it's Jesus who came to be our coach, to make us a winning team. We were the misfits who didn't belong, who were not accepted, who were rejected, but Jesus has come and made us a part of something, given us a reason to live, a place to serve, a place to belong, to have a new identity rooted in the value we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus ministered to the lonely, 
Casting out their demons, healing their diseases, delivering them from social stigma, restoring relationships, restoring people into their communities. Jesus rebuked leaders that held people down, who hoarded their positions and privileges of knowledge. Jesus showed how people who were considered worthless now had inestimable, inestimable worth in the sight of God. Jesus has made the valueless valuable. Jesus took those who were void of gifts in the eyes of the world and made them gifted kingdom agents. Jesus went to the lowest place, who humbled himself even to death on a cross, who sunk to the depths of the sea of sin and yet was raised to glory and now enjoys the position of highest honor over all of creation. Jesus was the most gifted man to ever walk the face of the earth. Intelligent, self-aware, could read people like a book, who was emotionally whole, deeply empathetic, and unswervingly committed to his father's mission. There was no greater communicator in the history of mankind than our Lord and Savior. The people would say, no one ever talked to us like this man does. There was no other person who had more insight into human nature, more greater compassion upon the weak, more bold to confront sin and injustice, and yet more faithful to the will of his Father. He is the truly gifted one who has imparted to each in every one of us, the gifts that his Father has willed for us to be used for the building up of the body and spreading the fame and the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. And people who spent time with Jesus matured in their gifts. Christ took those who did not amount to much in the eyes of the world and made them kingdom shakers, common fishermen, tax collectors, misfits and rejects, and transformed them. It was said that the Sanhedrin identified that Peter and John, untutored men, spoke with such boldness, and they noted that these men had been with Jesus. It's still true today those who are with Jesus, those who, are, who follow him, will be empowered and gifted to do amazing things, even those of us whom the world is not worthy. When people receive an organ transplant, they usually need an immunosuppressant drug. It's a drug that helps suppress the immune system to keep it from attacking and rejecting the new organ. The gospel is our immunosuppressant to overcome our natural resistance to change and differences to other people as new people God brings into the church. In Christ Jesus, we are called to embrace one another, to incorporate each member of the body of Christ. And the church is to be a place of gratitude where we appreciate one another's gifts, where we don't fall into the pit of, of comparison but leave all boasting to God and praise our Lord and Savior whose wisdom is infinite and perfect. 
to divide up the gifts for the building up of the body and testifying to the nations the greatness and the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. May he be praised forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ that we are his body, equipped by your Holy Spirit with gifts and talents, with potential to worship you and serve you, to proclaim you, to build up one another, that we might testify to the world, a world filled with pride and prejudice and rejection, that there is a place of belonging as we bow the knee to Christ, as we yield and submit to his word, as we join together arm in arm uh, to serve as his messengers, as one united body. Help us in that task, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.